Father. We seek your blessing on, on his teachings as well, that they might be effective. And Father, for the service that follows this one, that he would be effective, that the Holy Spirit would make that effective as well. And that our time in, in this class would be something that would be of value and benefit to each and every one of us. We're thankful for this time. We're thankful for the truth of your word, for the fact we can depend upon it. And we can take everything it says and say, Thus saith the Lord, without any concern that it could be wrong, because it isn't going to be wrong. It's the truth. And for that, we're thankful. Bless now in the services today, we ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen. Now in the series, this is kind of an awkward series to do in a way, but every fourth Sunday, we are going through the history of Israel, as it were. Now, for the last year, we have been looking at Israel and what God has planned for them. And part of the reason we're doing it, or perhaps the major reason we're doing it, is to see the distinction between Israel and the church. Because let me submit to you a simple fact. I believe that if you don't understand the distinctions between Israel and the church, you will not understand the majority of the Bible. You really will not understand it because it's based upon God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the church. If we can't see the differences between them, then we make, it, uh, we make a mishmash out of the scripture and we're not going to understand anything. So... Now, where we've been is uh, we've been looking at what God has planned in the past, and we saw that Israel failed under the law. That's not a big secret. Israel was sent out of the land. The temple was destroyed. The people were dispersed. And even in the time of Christ, there was not much going on. But when he began to speak, now there's a change. God offered them a chance at having the millennial kingdom that he promised in the Old Testament. It was a chance the king came, and what we're looking at now is, on, is out of the Sermon on the Mount. That it's the most, probably the most misused passage in Scripture. But what we see here is that, that God the Son has come, the promised Messiah, the promised king has come, and now he's offering a kingdom in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. It's up to the people to accept it. So when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, he has just begun in Matthew 4. Let's go back to Matthew 4 for just a moment. I want you to see this. Because if we, if we understand the Sermon on the Mount correctly and use it correctly, not to discard it, we're not saying it's not any good, no. It is excellent, but it is not excellent for us, not for our practice. It's excellent for our knowledge, but it is not for our practice. Now, in, Gen, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness have seen great light, and to them we who sat in the region and shadow of death is light sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if I, may, if I may add a little bit to that, it's the kingdom of the heavens. It's plural. This, I believe, is a millennial kingdom because, as we pointed out before, sometime back, if you go back to John 3, you will see that Jesus, before John the Baptist went to prison, was preaching the kingdom of God. But now when John goes into prison, he changes and he adds another message. He starts talking about the kingdom of the heavens. This is going to be about the government. This is going to be the promised kingdom. Now, if you see that clearly, 
Then when you come to the fifth chapter, now he's going to start talking about what the kingdom is going to be like. And in the process, it's not too surprising to find out, he's actually going to reveal some of the laws that will govern the kingdom. Now, if we take it that way, we're safeguarded from error. If we don't take it that way, believe me, and most of Christendom doesn't do that, we're in for trouble. We're in for trouble. Now, you can look at the first first two verses and you can see who was Christ teaching. Was he teaching all of Israel? Was he teaching all of the church? Well, the church isn't here. Who was he teaching? And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when his, he was seated, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. He taught them. Now, who is them in this context? A little bit of good Bible study principle. When you see a, a third-person plural, a them or a they, you have to figure out who it is from context. You can't just say, well, he taught them. Well, that's, he's teaching all the people of Israel. Well, he's teaching the church. No. I see he's taught them, and the nearest noun that it could refer to is his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. Now, he's telling them initially what their ministry is going to be like, how they are going to minister. And you can see that's true, because if you look down at verse 11 and 12, he's not talking to everyone, because not all of the nation Israel is ever going to fulfill this. They were not all going to be prophets. Look what he says in verse 11. Blessed are ye... When men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Unsaved people are not generally considered prophets. This disciple, his disciples were going to be prophets for him to announce they were going to go out, and you can read it in the 10th chapter of Matthew, and tell all the cities where he was coming, they were going to say, he's coming, he's coming, the king is coming, he's going to tell you. And they were his, so this is, this is, about, this is about something far different than something for the church. And we're going to talk at the end on page 19, if we don't get there, we'll have to do that next month, but you can read it on page 19. We're actually going back toward page 16 in the notes, and we're going to pick up, we, we started this a month ago, and we really didn't get through it, so I want to kind of go back and just review a little bit of 16 and then go on to page 17 into our notes a little further. But you can see that this is not about how the church lives. You're not going to find the church in here. One thing that's a challenge that I want to leave open to folks, go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and count how many times you see the word church. How many times do you think it's there? Well, I've got these three fingers up, but I've also got the goose egg over here, and that's how many times you see the church. And there's a lot of things that aren't said that you know it's not for the church, but it's just unbelievable how much people are taken by this. And, and you can really see it because one of the little things is when you get a red-letter edition of the Bible, why, why do they, Pastor, why do they print red-letter red editions of the Bible? P Pastor doesn't have a clue. Well, I don't either. Actually, I kind of do. Uh, it's because they think the words of Christ are more important than the words of Paul or Peter or James or John. Well, yes, he's the Son of God, but whose word is this? Is this the written word of who? It's, it's all God's word. It's all God's word. Christ's words are no more, no more important for us than Paul's words. In fact, when it comes to how we live, I think we should be paying more attention to what Paul says and maybe just a little bit less attention to uh, what Jesus said because we're going to have problems if we do that. Now, 
we, we mentioned, and we're starting in Matthew 5, 27, and this is a passage where I know there's a lot of fur that flies over this, and this is one of those places where controversy abounds because people want to take this for today and they want to teach all sorts of things out of this. And let's, let's read this again, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should, not per- should perish, and that thy whole body should not be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of your members should perish, and that your whole body should not be cast into hell. Now, here we have our, our teaching about adultery. Now, this, you'll notice that he said, you have heard that it was said of old. Now, that, of course, we mentioned before that we know that the average Jew did not have a copy of the Old Testament. They had scrolls, and most of them didn't have it. So when he says, you've heard that it was said of old, what that refers to is most of the Jews, when they heard the law, they heard it read in the synagogue or in the temple. That's what this is talking about. It's not that he's saying that, oh, this is scuttlebutt. No, this was what God said, and, and this is a perfect recording of what God said. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. So, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. Now, but you'll notice that Jesus said, but I say... Now, some people are trying to, and, and this is traditional, that they're trying to say that Jesus is giving a deeper, uh, fuller meaning to what this, what this was. No, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. He's replacing this. It's going to be a law for the millennial kingdom that is going to be more stringent. And you can see that, because look what he says in here. He said, uh, who's, let's see, uh, verse 27 28, but I say, whosoever looks at a woman to lust has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Now, that's not what the law says. That was not under the, under the seventh commandment of, of the law. It wasn't there. Now, the traditional view, and I put some in notes, if you have page 16 with you, if not, let me read it to you. But there's a quote from somebody who's, I like his commentary. In many cases, his commentary is pretty good. But when it comes to this spot, it's not very good because he says this about the, the seventh commandment. It is probable that the Pharisees had explained this commandment as they had the sixth, extending to the external act. In other words, committing adultery. The act of adultery was punishable. And that they regarded evil thoughts and wanton imagination as of little consequence or as not forbidden by the law. Our Savior assures them that the commandment did not regard the external act merely, but the secrets of the heart. And the movements of the eye, he declares that those who indulge in wanton lust, that they that look on a woman to increase their lust, have already in the sight of God violated the commandment and committed adultery in their heart. Now, wait a minute, where do you get that from? I don't see that in the Old Testament. Now, let's, let's be honest, folks. I believe that if God wanted that to be said, and I put that in your notes, if God intended to include the, the secrets of the heart and the movements of the eye, wouldn't he have told Moses that? Where do people, uh, I'm sorry folks, but I have a problem with that. I put in your notes very distinctly. They are reading into scripture, it's what we call eisegesis. And nobody has the right to read into God's word anything. If you do that, it's called error, it's called heresy. You could just call it a lie, that would be the simplest way to do it. Now, when we look at this commandment, I think you can see, and we're going over to the top of page 17 if you, st- if you have our notes, that this kingdom law is going to have high, is going to have high penalties. Because whenever you think about it, 
if you make a law in society about something, it's probably because that's going to be a problem area, isn't it? I mean, you, you don't make, you don't see a big uh, priority on laws about jaywalking or littering. Like they don't even enforce those laws anymore. Jaywalking, everybody does it. So if you make a specific law about something that becomes upfront, it's the second principle. Right after murder, this is given. This must be that there's a reason for this. This must be because it's either a common problem or it's one of the most destructive problems to society. And I, I think, as I look at it, I think I'm, I've kind of changed my opinion slightly from even from what I put in your notes. I think it's more that this is one of the most destructive things that can happen in society. This work of the flesh can do more damage to society than almost any other. Now, if you think about it, if you've ever talked to, to children who were raised out of broken families, divorced families, you'll find out that divorce and adultery, adultery frequently leads to divorce, you'll find out it has an enormous, enormous impact on the lives of children. It really does. Now, the reason, now you notice I put in there why adultery is singled out, because if you go over to, Matthew, or to Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh, the law of Moses, dealt with and was pointed at works of the flesh. The old nature, the fallen nature of man, has certain things it gravitates towards, and the list of them is found in Galatians 5. And the works of the flesh are not things that are necessarily very wholesome. They're perversions of things that would otherwise be good. Now, when you notice the list of the works of the flesh, I want you to notice the order. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I want to stop right there. Those first four works all involve perversions of sexual activity. Now, is there anything wrong with normal sex between a husband and wife in marriage? I hope there isn't. We're all a bunch of sinners. And that's, it isn't. There's nothing wrong with it. But you see what the flesh has done? Adultery. Well, you, you, can, you can be married, but you know you can, have, you can have a mistress here, and you can have a fling there. And oh, if, it's, if it feels good, you go out and do it. Now, the fact that this is put first in here, I look at this as the way you would look at a, at a label on, in a grocery store. If you're like I am and you pick up, anytime you get, get something canned, I ought, automatically pick it up and have for years and read the ingredients. And how are the ingredients listed on a can of, of anything? The, the first ingredient is the one that's the most common. Now, if you pick up a can and you see high fructose corn syrup on the label, are you going to buy that? I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to put that back on the shelf. I know it's going to be sweet, but I don't know that I want that much sugar in my diet. So, and, and so we read labels because if that's way up at the top, you're not going to buy it. It depends on what's in there. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Because when you look at the works of the flesh, the first one at the top of the list is adultery followed by fornication. Followed by, all of these are perversions of sex. These are either the most common or they're the most destructive. It's a dis listen, I believe it's a list in descending order. The ones at the top are the either, and I believe, I tend to think now, that they're probably the most destructive. Because if you have adultery, what happens to people that commit adultery when they get found out? Oh, they'll never get caught, they say. How is it that most people commit adultery wind up getting caught at some point? Seems like it happens. Well, I think when you look at this list, this is well to realize that the reason that there is a law in the Millennial Kingdom specifically addressing this is because this 
particular work of the flesh, this sin that people could commit, is the most destructive in terms of society right after murder. It has the worst, you know, you commit murder, that has a huge effect on society. Well, you commit, a, you commit adultery, and potentially you have something that is every bit as destructive, maybe even more so in some cases, as murder. Because a broken family, how many times have you heard stories about someone who said how much they missed their daddy when he was gone? Because mom and dad got divorced and broke up. You, it's, it's a common theme. It's a very common theme. And uh, I would say, judging from soap operas, you know, I put a note in here, judging from soap operas and TV, they would agree that adultery is very common by giving it a leading role. And I used to remember, I heard about soap operas when I was a kid, and my mother, uh, before she was a believer, she used to watch soap operas a lot. And you know, they had General Popsicle and all those other ones on, uh, General Hospital, General Popsicle. They had all kinds of doozies on, and uh, they had, a, they had, the theme seemed to be who was going, with, who was going up after who, somebody else's wife, who was going to bed with this woman over here, and what, you know, and all this, and wait a minute, is that what the whole country is operating on, is that? Well, I don't know if the soap operas are still like that. I, I, they're still on, some of them, I guess, but I don't have any idea. But the very fact that, I put in your notes, the very fact that the millennium will have a law against adultery su- suggests that it will be a major problem then. It is right now. It is right now. Now, I put in here, we're going to get to some other things. We're going to talk about the penalties in a moment. But there's some things about this I think are worth knowing. Why is it important for us? Well, I think adultery is associated with other types of sexual misconduct. Do you remember the works of the flesh? It said adultery, and then it had fornication, and then it had uncleanness and lasciviousness. Those things tend to work together. The works of the flesh work together. Now, this might seem technical, but I think if we see this, it'll help us understand how it would work in the millennial kingdom, how that would all operate, but it also would give us an idea of how it works today. Because works of the flesh usually tend to group together. There are certain ones that fit together very well. I know pastors talked about this, and I've appreciated it. But for example, I want you to look over at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a second. We'll be back in Matthew before you know it, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's something that I think is worth seeing. You'll see that these, these works pair together, and it's the same works we're talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. Now, Paul is going to visit the church at Corinth. You know, we, we think that the early church was a really wonderful bunch of people. They were all spiritual giants compared to the 21st century and so forth. But, you know, I, I'm thankful Scripture tells us the truth. It doesn't put on rose-colored glasses. It doesn't hide the facts. Look what Paul says. He's going to come to them again, and he says this, Verse, beginning at verse 20, For I fear that when I, shall come, that when I come, I shall not find you as I would, and that, there shall, and that I shall be found unto you as you would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. Sounds like a church business meeting, huh? <laughs> but then, look at this, Unless when I come again, God, my God will humble me among you, and I shall bewail many that have sinned already and have not repented. Now you notice, many that have sinned, not a few, but many that have sinned and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lasciviousness which they've committed. Three works that go along with adultery. Three works. So you see how they pair together? Now, if you look at if what those words mean individually, there's a shade of difference between them all, and they fit together, and they describe how a person would fall into some of these things. If we're looking at, for example, 
uh, we, I put in your notes that you have fornication. Now, that's listed in there, but fornication is a word, I believe, that, that just com- that encompasses all of the other words. It encompasses all four of those first four works of the flesh. And the reason I would say that is because of how it's used by, uh, back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, you, you can see that it's used. Now, if you're going to tell someone not to do something, you'll probably use the most broad, inclusive term. If, you, if you're going out and you're leaving your kids with a babysitter, and if your kids were anything like I was, you'd say, you stay out of trouble. Now, my parents would say, they wouldn't say be good. They'd tell me, you stay out of trouble, because I had a reputation. when I, You might not believe it, but I was an honorary kid. Now, I, I know nobody would believe that today. <clears throat> my, I tell my kids I wasn't. I don't think they believe me either. But... Uh, so if you tell your kids stay out of trouble, you're not going to tell them don't paint, don't take a crayon and write on the wall, don't beat up on your sister, don't go in the refrigerator and get the ice cream. Don't. You're not going to tell them all the things they could do wrong. You're going to just say one simple thing, the broadest term, stay out of trouble. Well, my parents would get more specific with me besides that, but that's beside the point. But anyway, so you look in, in Acts chapter 15, James is writing a letter on behalf of the church to settle the question about what were the Gentile believers supposed to keep the law of Moses? And the answer is no. And he tells them some things, but now he could tell them every single, if you look at verse 20, in verse 29 he repeats it, he says, but we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from things blood, and from blood. Now he could have said, and from and named every single type of perversion of sex that, there, that you could imagine. He could have named everything. Or he could have taken a word that would summarize all of it. It would be like saying, stay out of trouble. Well, he says, avoid fornication. And I believe that word is used because it summarizes, it's a bigger word that includes adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, pedophilia, and all those other things that they're trying to say are okay today. There was a guy in England that said that pedophilia was a good thing. He was a, he was a doctor or a psychologist, something like that, about a year and a half ago. And I, I, we should be surprised, but I guess maybe we aren't in, in the times we're living. But all of these things are summarized out of that. Now, that's important because when you look over at 2 Corinthians 12, what that says is that there was a whole lot of stuff going on. And it says many have done these things. It was uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness. Like, what were these people doing? The first century church had its problems, folks. Don't ever think that, that we're, we can't be what God wants us to be because we're not holy like the first century church. I hope you're not like the first century church because you might be like Corinth. And there's probably a lot more of the Corinthians running around these days than any other group. So anyway, you can see that now. Uh, you can also see the word that uncleanness that we saw in there. That's a word that you find, it, it's, and I put in your notes, it's a word that has a, it's a state of mind which looks at others as an object for one's sexual pleasure. And, and you can see that, and for the sake of time, we're not going to go there, but you can see it in Romans one twenty four. And the other word, lasciviousness, is a word that, oh boy, I think that word's probably popular today. That's a word for open and outrageous sexual conduct that makes no attempt to be hidden. People do it without trying to hide it. And you can see that over, in, let's go ahead and go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's, it's going to run out of time before we run out of scripture, but you need to see this. The way we were before we were saved, uh, and we're not, the fact that we're not that way anymore, it seems to bother some people. Beginning at verse 1 of 1 Peter 4. 
For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the, in the, lust, in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now notice, he goes on to explain it, for, that little word for is so good, it's an explanatory word. He says, for, or because, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. I'd say people don't like it if you don't go along with them. You speak evil of you, but you notice it has lasciviousness along with excess of drinking, reveling, which is, uh, well, it's not a very nice word. Let's just put it that way. It's shacking up. It's, uh, it's all kind of activity. And you'll notice it's, it's characterized, among other things, as lasciviousness. It's conduct that doesn't care who sees it. Now, if you, and now why that's important is because when you go back to Matthew chapter 5, when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, you look on a woman to lust, what is he saying? Well, that, that look to lust, that is none other than a work of the flesh. That is going to have to be what you would call uncleanness. Looking on this other person as a potential for sexual satisfaction. They may not even know about it. That's the, the strange thing about this, this particular law is it says this man is looking at this woman. It doesn't say that she even knows about it. Do you realize that? If you look at Matthew 5, you see here it says, you look on a woman to lust, does it say that she knows about it and she's okay with it? No, it doesn't. So now you have this man looking, and I believe you can say, honestly, that he is looking at her with an unclean frame of mind. In other words, he sees her as a potential for sexual gratification. Doesn't care if it's wrong, doesn't care anything about it, that's what he sees. Now, if he were able to commit that lasciviousness in the millennial kingdom, I believe then it would be what we, we would call that lascivious. If he was able to actually commit a, adultery with it, it would be actually lascivious. It would be an open display of un- outrageous conduct because of the penalties that are there. But you'll notice that because of the penalties, the way they're administered, do you think it's going to be possible for someone to even commit adultery in the kingdom? Now, this, is, this is a surprise, maybe. Is it going to be possible for someone to commit adultery in the kingdom? Well, what does it say here in Scripture? Let's see. And if you're right, I offend thee. You know, take it out. Cut off your hand, whatever. It's better to do that than to be cast into the lake of fire, into Gehenna. So, in other words, when a person gets to that point when they're looking with that intent, then I believe... From what we've seen in Matthew 13, angels are going to come and that person is going to be taken right then and there and taken straight to the lake of fire. Now, just imagine if that happened today. Oh, boy, <laughs> this country would be cut, the population would be cut in half overnight and then it would be cut in half the next day. And we get down to the point where we might only have a handful of people left. Not even enough to, to be... Com- but now, you'll notice, let's be literal here. Look what happens to the guilty party. You have a, you have a remedy. You only have one choice. Now think about this. If you're faced with going to, going to hell, which is permanent, the lake of fire, Gehenna, this is what's called the second death. No one comes back from this. There's no additional judgment. People that go to Gehenna at this point are not going to be brought back to the great white throne. They're already done. It's already final. Now, given the choice between finality of damnation, well, here's your option. 
If your right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of your members should not perish, or that one of your members should perish, and that your whole body not be cast into hell. That's Gehenna, that's the lake of fire, that is the second death that it talks about in Revelation. So if a person gets to the point where they're looking at that person, this is millennial. This is how strict the millennial kingdom is going to be. They look with a desire for that sexual set. They have that unclean frame of mind. Oh, that would sure be nice. I get some satisfaction out of that. And all the things that people would say, right then and there, that person is taken. He has an, he has an option. He'll be confronted by an angel and he'll have an option of taking out the eye or going to the lake of fire or having the hand cut off. Or going to the lake of fire. Now let's be literal, folks. Anybody that wants to use this today, please, 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 please take the word of God literally. If you don't take the word of God literally, if you try and do what these other people try and do, what gives you the right to say that Scripture does not mean exactly what it says? It doesn't say that this is do like this or do like that. It says do this. It's an emphatic, simple statement. It says this is what you do. Now I don't see any way around this. If we're going to be literal with Scripture then we should be literal. And what I like about this, I know pastor will like this too. There's going to be no plea bargaining, brother. Aren't you going to be glad? There's going to be no, I would love to be just like myself after the rapture for 10 minutes to see somebody get and say, yes, it's about time you guys got what you had coming. Unfortunately, I'm not going to, Scott, I'm not going to get that right, I'm telling you. But unlike today, there's going to be no plea bargaining and so forth. Now, there is nothing like this in the epistles of the church. One reason that, that you have a real problem with this is how could anyone honestly say that they can see that you're thinking this way? That you have a woman walks by a man, a man looks at her, she goes by. He could be thinking, that looks like my daughter, that looks like my neighbor, that looks like somebody who could be thinking anything. He could be looking right at her, not even thinking about her at all. To enforce this kind of a law today, you'd have to have somebody that could read the minds of someone. Now, I know there's people who think they can read other people's minds, but they can't. That's pretty obvious. They can't. So, there's nothing like this. Now, the, under the law, under the law, one thing that's important to remember is the law did require the penalty. You can go back, and, and I put it in your notes, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, if people committed adultery back there in the Old Testament... They were put to death. They were stoned. But you know what? It didn't say that they were going to be put to death if they thought about doing it. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine if that? Oh, my God. How would you do that? And there is no, there is no history anywhere, no, nowhere in recorded history, do you ever find anybody being put to death or any society that had a law that required people who thought about committing adultery to be put to death, who, who thought about stealing? Could you imagine that? So I used the illustration before, pastor's driving down the highway, and I'm going to pick on Pastor Kevin because he's my brother, and the police pull him over and say, well, I'm going to give you a ticket, Pastor Kevin. Well, why is that? You were, going to go, you were thinking about going 75 miles an hour, and the speed limit is 65. I'm giving you a ticket because you were thinking about it. Now, can they do that? Well, maybe, they, maybe some of these people that are going into office now think they can. But currently, in a sane society, you cannot be given a ticket by the police for planning on breaking the speed limit because how would he even know you were thinking about it? You know, there's no mind readers running around out there. The only ones that would think they're mind readers were elected to office. <clears throat> A cheap political shot there. 
Now, even in Jewish society, if you go back to John chapter 8, we won't go there, but the, the woman that was taken in adultery that the Pharisees were trying to use to discredit Christ, they brought her in. They weren't even stoning people then because they, they really couldn't. They had to get the authority of Rome to put anybody to death. So the, they weren't even doing it. Now, adultery today is a sin that is recorded in, it's, it's recorded as a sin in Scripture, and it's something that has to be confessed by a Christian to God the Father. Does it, does it mean someone's going to go to hell immediately because of it? No. It's a sin. It's a sin like any other sin. But now, the act of committing adultery, today, like I believe it will be in the future in the Millennial Kingdom, has some of the greatest personal and societal consequences for those that, that commit it. There have been more marriages ruined because of this. There have been more, more homes broken up. There have been more children hurt by divorce because that is often the, the consequence of adultery. And even if it doesn't end in divorce, a lot of times the marriage is never the same after that because you never really can, you never feel like you can really trust that person. They did it once. Will they, will they do it again? There's, there's always that. Not every time, but it happens. So now to say that there are no consequences like that, like, uh, like there will be in the millennial kingdom, is not to say that any of the works of the flesh that are lead to adultery are okay for the Christian. I'm not saying that, that if you have those thoughts in your mind, that, oh, that's okay. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that you're not going to be punished for that. Those are, those are things that you need. When you confess your sin, God cleanses you from that. That's unrighteous. Those things are not right. But there's no immediate judgment for that. Now, the reason this is, becomes important is on page 19. And we did get here. I was hoping, I was planning that we should get here. Now, why is all this important to talk about anyway? Because those that want to apply Matthew 5, 27 through 30 to the church today must allegorize like crazy. Or I would put it, they must mutilate this passage. That's my opinion. They have, you have to mutilate this passage to, to apply it to the church. Now, this one individual, now this Albert Barnes, I put in the notes earlier, I respect this man. I, I have his commentary on Esword. I use it. He, he's, very often, he's helpful about things. But in this area, he's not helpful at all. He's wrong. Here's what he says about this cutting off your hand and cutting, putting out your eye and cutting off your hand. If your right eye offend thee, the right hand is selected for the same reason as the right eye because it is one of the most important members of the human body. The idea, I highlighted it, you know, the idea is that the dearest earthly objects are to be sacrificed rather than that we should commit sin that the most rigid self-denial should be practiced, that the absolute self-government should be maintained at any sacrifice rather than that we should suffer the mind to be polluted with unholy thoughts and impure desires. What? I'm scratching my head. Where do you get that? Where do you get that in this passage? Now, come on, folks, let's be honest. The Word of God is to be taken literally. Do you see that in here? I see that if your eye offends you, you either pluck it out or you go to, you go to the lake of fire. I see your right hand. You either give it up or you're going to go to the lake of fire if, you, if you're in this situation. Where do you get the idea the dearest earthly objects are to be sacrificed? If that's, if that's how you study the Bible, then folks, we're miss, we've missed the boat. Here's another one. This is, this is a contemporary one. Now that, uh, Barnes Notes in the Bible was written over 100 years ago. It's, it's Like I said, it's pretty good overall, but you have to be careful because when he gets off into error, boy, does he get off. Now, this one is contemporary, and I have a reference. You can check it on the Internet if you want to see it. He, he said this about this passage. Christ was merely using the parts of the body to make an important point. 
He was showing that Christians should not tolerate sin as an integral part of their life. If an individual has a sinful habit, he should overcome it, even, even though the process may be as painful as the loss of an arm or leg. Christ is saying it's far better to forsake a sinful pleasure than to lose salvation. And here you got, you notice I put it here? There are two serious errors here. The second one is, is obvious. You lose your salvation by committing sin. Well, see what happens if people take this passage and they mutilate it for today. This is one possible way it's taken. And there are those who will teach that. And they will teach here, you can lose your salvation because they know that a Christian can't go to Gehenna. So the only person to go is there is an unsaved person. So therefore, if you do this, you lose your salvation. Now, is that true? It makes good, It's logical. It also happens to be based upon fallacy. This is not written for us. This is to tell the people of Israel what they were going to have. It's recorded so that we know what Christ offered to them. That knowledge is supposed to be good for us, not to be misused and applied to us. That, that's just... That's... The real danger, the real danger with allegorizing like this is that it seldom stops with one passage of Scripture. If you're going to start allegorizing things you don't like or don't understand, and believe me, people do that all the time when they don't like something. The big thing, they, there's two things they don't like. They don't like eternal punishment, so they'll allegorize that away, and they don't like the doctrine of election that God chose some, and but didn't choose others. And they don't like, so they'll allegorize those things because they don't like them. I have a big headline for people. You and I are not given the right to pick and choose what we like in the Word of God. If there's something that I don't like in the Word of God, tough. The problem is with this stubborn, hard-headed old sinner. If I'm a fool enough to argue with God, then I'm really a fool. And anybody that wants to dispute what God says in His Word is a fool. And I'm not worried about it. It says back here, if you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. No, I'm not in danger of hellfire. Not at all. So, we say toward the bottom of our notes... If we are not literal, the meaning of this entire passage is lost. The whole, whole Matthew 5 is, is gone. It's gone. Because it becomes a pious platitude. In, in Matthew 5, 26-30, do you realize that there really is no danger to the sinner here at all? Because since no one can read your mind, and no one knows you're thinking this, then you could not possibly ever have someone come up to you and say, take out the eye, cut off the hand, because no one can read your mind. So therefore, there is no danger to a sinner at all. Do you see that? There's no danger, because you have to be, someone has to know, and only God himself knows that. So there's no danger. So if, you, if people put this for the church today, you know what this becomes? I hate what it becomes. You notice I put in all bold, if you look at your notes, here we, here we believe some of the greatest damage is done to the person of Christ. He is not the king warning his people of impending judgment. He's reduced to a man pronouncing ivory tower pious but powerless platitudes. And he's become a weakling. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ that I love and serve is not a weakling. But the one that says there and says this thing, well, now you should do this and you should do that, but no one can ever do it because no one can read your mind, so therefore it can never be, you can never be punished. So then what does it become? It's a pious platitude. Wonderful. It'd be like, what would happen if they took down the penalties for all the speed limits out there? What happens if you never got a ticket? How, much, how, how good would the speed limit be if no one ever got a ticket? It'd be, it'd be a pious platitude. It'd be something that has no teeth. This law has no teeth if you allegorize it and say, oh, give up these dearest things to you. Oh, it's in your mind. Since nobody knows what's in your mind but you, who's going to, take you, who's going to go after you for it? Is God the Father going to come along and tell you to do this? How would you apply this? Do you see what's happened? 
You have pious platitudes that have no power. It's no wonder the unsafe people love this. Did you know Mahatma Gandhi loved the Beatitudes? Did you know that? He loved them. I can tell you why. The way he interprets them, the way that most people interpret them, they're pious platitudes that have no teeth. This is not the way it is. This is in the Millennial Kingdom, I guarantee you, this is going to be done. There will be no adultery in the Millennial Kingdom because if you try to do it, then when you get to the point where you're ready, God the Son is going to make sure the angels come and say, you got a choice, pal, the eye or the lake. You know, and, that, and it's, it's, that's going to be. Now, that's a whole lot. That, that, that has a picture of Jesus Christ that I think is correct. He is the sovereign. He is the almighty God. He is the one in charge. He's not some weakling sitting there giving some pious platitudes. Well, if you do this, oh, please, folks. The other thing is the problem with this is when you start to allegorize a Sermon on the Mount, it becomes the basis for Christian life. That's why you have red-letter editions to the Bible, because people put the words of Christ and they want to live their Christian life based upon what Christ has said. There's a problem with this. There's a problem with this. None of the things that Paul told us to do are found here. None of the things that give you victory are found here. For example, go over to John chapter 14, verse 20. If you look at John chapter 14, this is something that you need to know. But Jesus, but Jesus here tells his disciples, you didn't know it yet, you're going to. So he didn't talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount. But if he's going to tell you now, you're going to need to know it. It's going to be important now, but it wasn't found back there. John chapter 14 and beginning at verse 20. At that day, now he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. We should point that out. At that day, you shall know, number one, that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Ye in me, I in you. Those are the two sides of in, as we call them. And you have ye in me. Boy, you find that all over the place in Paul's writings. You're seen in Christ. You're seated at the right hand in Him. You've accepted in the Beloved. You're seen in Him. That's our position in Christ. And me and I in you, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Christ in you is eternal life. It says you will know that at that day. Well, if you'll know it at that day, then that means back at the prior time, back in Matthew 5, they didn't know this. So they couldn't use this. Now, if they didn't have it, and we do, and we need it, then apparently we can't go back here because it won't do what this says to do because this was never given to us. And you lose, we lose our entire Christian life. You look for Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Will you find anything about the rapture of the church? No, you will not. Will you find anything at all about the church? No, you will not. Will you find anything about spiritual gifts like the pastor's been teaching? Will you find anything about that? No, you will not. You won't find anything for us. You will find how someone should live in the millennial kingdom. Now, that's a benefit. Now, folks, that's a great benefit because if you've ever wondered, what will it be like? Read the Sermon on the Mount with your eyes open. This is what it's talking about. You have laws here. This is one of them. It's pretty stringent law. It's pretty tough. It's not going to be some kind of a democratic society where they pass legislation and Jesus Christ says, well, okay, they passed it. They're going to override me on a veto, so I might as well sign it. We're not going to have that. <laughs> We're not going to have bipartisanship and crossing the aisle, no. It's, it's going to be, so if you want to know what the Millennial Kingdom is going to be like, folks, it's here. You can see what the laws are going to be like. Let's use it the right way. 
Because if you use it the wrong way, you're taking the Lord Jesus Christ and you're making him a weakling, someone that's uttering pious platitudes. Because these, these laws, there's no way you can enforce these laws today in the church. There is no way. How could you tell somebody, oh, you, oh, brother so-and-so, you, you were lusting after a woman. How do you know that? Well, if he told you, even if he did. Okay, so then now you've got to cut your hand off or cut it by your eye. And if you don't, we're going to send you to, to hell. Is God going to do that to a Christian today? Please. There's no condemnation to us. We've been saved. There's no way that you or I can go there. Please don't let anybody tell you that this is for today. The Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful message. But it's not given for us to practice. It's given to us so we can know about it. But please don't use it. Now there's wonderful truth here. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Don't say I don't. Don't, don't, we, don't we won't. We don't discount it in any way. We don't sell it short. But we don't misuse it because if you misuse it, you've ruined it. You've ruined what Israel has. You've ruined what we have. And you'll never understand. If you don't understand the Sermon on the Mount and take it literally, you will not understand what Israel had, what their future is, and you really won't understand your own. And you won't understand what Christ has done for you in the work of salvation. You won't understand the position you have in Christ. You won't understand eternal life. You talk about being spiritually impoverished. Believe me, you will be spiritually impoverished if you don't understand this book. Please, take the Sermon on the Mount literally, folks. Don't let anybody stick it on your back. If you want to spend your time learning about the Christian life, get into the Paul's, Paul's epistles and look at what it means to be in Christ. And think about those things. Think about what he's done. Pay attention to the right things. You know these things? You know them, so you have an idea. But the important part is the things that the pastor is teaching. Your spiritual life, your spiritual gift, that's where our time is. So if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, that's fine. Just remember, those words are no more important than Paul's. And Paul's are directly addressed to you. So those are the ones we really should pay the most attention to. Let's have a word of prayer as we close, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are thankful <coughs> for your word. We're thankful that... This beautiful Sermon on the Mount is so well said, so beautifully spoken, and so well given to the people of Israel so that they would know exactly what to expect. They knew exactly what they were being offered. <clears throat> and we can look at it too and we can say, wow, this is what it's going to be like. We really do know something about the future for them. And Father, as long as we keep it that, in that mode of thinking, we're benefited by knowing the Sermon on the Mount. We're benefited by this beautiful message. But if we dare to try and twist it, distort it, mutilate it to fit, our, to fit ourselves and read all kinds of silliness in there, then, Father, we've ruined, your, we've ruined your word. We've ruined the most beautiful sermon that we've ever seen in print. It's not for us, but it's a beautiful sermon, and we've ruined it if we take it for us. May we never come to the point, Father, where we think that just because it sounds good, it must, it must belong to us. Father, we need to pay attention to the book and take it literally. Taking this sermon literally... We are blessed and benefited by knowing the future for Israel, but we're also safeguarded by taking it literally from misapplying it to ourselves and creating a web of guilt and misery that should not be foisted upon your people. We're thankful, Father, that we can do so. Give us, Father, the desire to be students and above all to take your word literally and to give it the honor that it deserves by doing so. For you have said exactly what you mean. You don't need us to interpret it. You don't need us to add to it, Father. You simply want us to take it as its value for what it says, and then we can be blessed. We're thankful for this time together. Now may these things be helpful, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen.